so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. We're going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, and it's really kind of timely given the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, well, the angst, the anger, the bubbling up of emotions that a lot of people are feeling, especially those that have uh, served in Afghanistan. It also happened to a lot of folks when we left Iraq, but I think it's a little bit different this time. We're going to talk about moral injury. Now, moral injury is a little bit different than PTSD, but often it's so correlated because it's the challenge to what you know is right and wrong. To help us talk about moral injury, we have Tom Voss. He's an author, but more importantly, he was a soldier. He was in a scout sniper platoon in Iraq, and he came home carrying those invisible wounds of war that so many of us have. And really, the challenges in trying to come home well. So moral injury is really the memory of doing or witnessing something that went against your fundamental beliefs. And that's sort of the definition of moral injury. Now, if this was a physical injury, you could heal it with medication or time. But when it's a moral injury, it's a wound to the soul. And really, it helped Tom almost to the brink of suicide. So Tom knew he needed to do something, so he embarked on a journey across America. He goes walking from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to the Pacific Ocean with a fellow veteran, and they wrote a book. It's pretty amazing. If you go read it, you'll walk away and understand why they're doing it. It's really neat, and it's a really neat style of book. It's kind of like a conversation. But at the end of their trek, He realizes that he's really just beginning to understand what war had done to him and how he needs to get help and how to move away from that despair. His story is quite inspirational. So, Tom, let's start at the beginning. You were in Iraq. You're in a scout sniper platoon, which is a really difficult and dangerous job. Uh, You're up in Basel, which is up in the northern part of Iraq. And unlike a lot of soldiers, you're outside of the wire quite a bit. Now, I know in the movies, they glamorize snipers all the time, but it's a really challenging job. And most people don't even leave the base. So how did that go for you? Yeah, so my job while I was in Mosul was I was part of the scout sniper platoon. My job actually was reconnaissance. So I was a uh, senior scout. And so we did a lot of intelligence gathering and a lot of missions where we would be dropped off in groups of two or three um, in the middle of Mosul and be left for 72 hours, for example, in a house, abandoned house by ourselves, where we would sit and gather intelligence either on an intersection or a house or a high value target or someone or something. So we got our whole you know, job was not to be seen and to be able to gather as much intelligence as possible, along with providing security for our sniper teams. And also one thing that we did a lot of was detaining high value targets. So we really didn't get a lot of information about 
the why, but we got the information about the who. So we worked in tandem with army intelligence to detain, for example, individuals that were involved with deploying car bombs in the city or a vehicle borne IED or improvised explosive devices that were the guys who are in charge of these uh, groups of people that were uh, implementing these strategies in the city. So we did a lot of missions and we had a lot that we saw and a lot that you end up seeing that you really can't do too much about, but that sticks with you. That is a really challenging job. And to see things in that perspective and knowing that you're by yourself for three days, that's very unusual for most soldiers, right? A lot of soldiers never leave the water. They may go on a trip here and there, but unless you're like a truck driver driving back and forth, you're not sitting by yourself with another person or two for two to three days in a city full of people trying to kill you. So that's a very different experience than most soldiers have. So you came back and you realize, man, something isn't cool. Something's wrong. Well, when I was uh, deployed, the first thing that happened was our platoon sergeant was killed in action. So that was a huge blow to our platoon. And then not so long after that, we lost one of our squad leaders who was also killed in action. So it had a, a pretty profound impact on me and my understanding of death and my relationship to that and seeing civilian casualties, you know, people in the wrong place at the wrong time that nothing that you could have done, even though you know, you're going in with the best intentions. And I think that's what a lot of people who haven't deployed don't really understand is, you know, the intent of why we're there is the driving force. And for us, while we were deployed, right, we wanted to bring the opportunity to have democracy for a country that had been under dictatorship for quite a long time. And that was kind of the driving force behind it. So you lose friends and you're saying this is justified in the sense of that we're doing this to give people a chance to have their voices heard and to set up a government that is a representative of all the people, not just a few powerful people. After our platoon sergeant was killed and our squad leader was killed, you start seeing things on top of it, like the driving forces around military contracts. So I remember one one day, my one of my buddies pulled me aside and pointed out to a a contractor that was just doing like changing light bulbs and all these different things. And he said, Hey man, that guy over there is getting paid six figures. Did you know that? And then we quick did the math and we found out with combat pay, we were getting under minimum wage to be there. So you start piecing things together and understanding that there's more to this than you know, what we were told we were fighting for. And I think that plays a lot into the concept of moral injury, where you believe you're doing something that's just, right? Something that's there to help people, to help people who are less fortunate than yourselves. And then you start to have a better understanding of that's not the, the total picture. Well, no, you actually brought up a great point. When you know someone that has died in combat or even combat-related activities, it brings it home. It makes it real. It makes it real that this is really dangerous, especially when you're a young soldier and your squad leader and your platoon sergeant, well, they are invincible. They've been around the block. They know what to do. They know how to do it. They're the ones enforcing the standard. And when you see them die, all of a sudden, wow, you totally say this could have been me. And you approach things in a whole different light. And then, of course, we have all the contractors and all the money that's going around. And those are big factors because because you're thinking, hey, I'm doing this for freedom and democracy. And then you realize that there are a lot of people around you that are not there for the same reason. They're not there for freedom and democracy. They're doing it because they're getting paid lots and lots of money. 
Well, I mean, it really plays into the concept of moral injury very well because it's the definition, again, of moral injury is witnessing or participating or failing to prevent acts that go against your own deeply held sense of right and wrong, or like your moral compass, you can think of think of it that way too. And then you understand what am I participating in? Are Is this a just cause? Am I a good person? Can I be forgiven for the things that I've seen and the things that I've participated in, or even the, the people that I failed to save? And I think that's what we're seeing right now with what's happening in Afghanistan is that they didn't really have a choice on the at which speed they needed to withdraw from Afghanistan. But because of that, interpreters and, and people who we have strong relationship with ended up having to be left behind, which goes against a lot of the guys that I deployed with. And in the infantry too, is the, the saying no man left behind. And we really, we really believe in that. And you know, there are, are men and women that are willing to sacrifice their lives to uphold that and that understanding. So going back to the, the concept of moral injury, I didn't really have time to reflect on any of this stuff in the combat zone because you're going 24-7. You don't really have the luxury of sitting back and saying, how did this impact me? And how do I feel about this? And that's not really the role you're in at that time. But you see, when you come home and you're out of the military institution, you're out of that environment and you start to reflect back on maybe perceived failures that you've had. And for me, it was the the death of my platoon sergeant. And that day I was given the day off, which is something that was really rare and special when you're given a day off. So, you know, you're doing all the good things. You're going, you're eating three meals a day in the day, you're going to the gym, you're taking naps, whatever you can do to recoup and kind of rest and all that kind of stuff. So I was given the day off and I noticed that my platoon hadn't come back and it was supposed to be a routine mission of just giving some Navy SEALs who had came into country a a quick tour of Mosul and and showing them the city. So it was essentially a non-essential mission when we were just giving them a spin around the city and they ended up getting hit with a rocket. And so I'm sitting back, you know, enjoying myself. And then my platoon finally came back in the evening and I found out that my platoon sergeant didn't make it, didn't make it back. So for me, there was a lot of guilt around that because I wasn't there. I wasn't out there. And there's a lot of guilt and shame around not being with my guys and being there to help support. And so I spent a lot of years thinking about what would have been different if I would have been out there that day. But ultimately, there's nothing that I could do about that situation. As much as I wanted to do something about it, there's just nothing that I could have done. And it took me years to realize that. So I think we get end up getting caught in these cycles of shame and guilt and beating ourselves up about situations that we have no control over. You bring up a great point that while you're deployed, you're going and going full speed. And even when you're still in the military, but not deployed, you're still still going full speed and you don't really have time or space to sit back and reflect and you don't certainly reflect at a distance about what is right and wrong whether it was moral or immoral whether it was good or bad it's just what you did and then when you get out of the military you often have time to think about these things you start brings you back to the distinctions about what you did and how you did it and there's a lot of survivor's guilt And I think that's a good distinction between moral injury and PTSD. Now, they can both coexist. They can exist at the same time in the same space, but the causes are different. But that's why medication doesn't work for moral injuries, because we're not treating the thing that caused the problem. And we've talked to chaplains and we've talked to other folks, and I love the concept of moral injury because it is an injury. Your psyche, the core of who you are, is not in balance. So, Tommy, you get home, you're... With these thoughts, you're dealing with these feelings. And of course, the VA is going to 
hand you some pills. They're going to have you see a psychiatrist. And I don't even know what they're up to these days. But at the time, they were loading people up with medication. Yeah. Just to backtrack a little, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on PTSD versus moral injury because we we touched on it a little bit. But I really believe that in, in my case, you know, looking at post-traumatic stress, it's a conditioning of the nervous system, right? So you're in a dangerous situation. And this is specifically to the soldier or uh, Marine or airman who are deployed. So you're in a dangerous situation for a prolonged period of time. So your nervous system is conditioned to respond to that dangerous situation. So that takes a little bit of time. You take a couple of car bombs, you I, improvise explosive devices, a couple of ambushes, and then your body responds because it understands that it's in a dangerous situation. So hypervigilance, all these different things, all these different uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, you can start to think of them as like a conditioning of your uh, system. So it's just a survival mechanism, really. And when you come home, you don't really have a way to turn that off. It's not like a light switch where you're like, well, that's done. We're in a safe place now. Your body and mind don't really believe that based on your past experiences. So we come home and we're still in that zone, I guess you could say. Moral injury, I think can happen parallel with post-traumatic stress. So you can have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, which are depression, anxiety, sleeplessness, hypervigilance, these different things that are symptoms. And moral injury is the asking the tough questions of, am I a good person for what I participated in? You know, Can I be forgiven? Who will understand what I've been through? Like, who can I even tell or who can I even talk to about this? And most of the time you come to the conclusion that there's no one that you can talk to. So you keep it locked up and that just ends up being detrimental to your own health and wellness. So they, like you said, they both can run parallel to each other. But I think over time, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress diminish and are replaced with the symptoms of moral injury. So those are also looking at how we're treating symptoms of these illnesses, I guess you could say, versus going to the core of the problem, which is moral injury, I believe, right? So at the end of the day, we really have to dig down deep and really do like a self-audit and understand what the issue is at, at hand. Unfortunately, when I got back from the from I think 2008 was the first time I went in to go seek help. So two years after I got out of the army and I really was, we're treating the symptoms, right? So I was on different medications because I had different symptoms, but that's not really getting at the core of how you feel. So moral injury, I think is that core, like who you are as a person. And the thing to remember is moral injury really shows us who we're not. So that's detrimental to see, like, can I be forgiven for, for killing someone? And that's something that you're tasked with doing as an infantry soldier. But when you come home and you're out of danger, you're out of harm's way, are you able to, is that who I am as a person? Which in most cases, no, it, it's just inherent in war. So you have to grapple with these things and these understandings of who or not, if that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. You know, the idea of killing someone is so alien to who we are as people, as Americans, to whatever faith you might have. It's pretty universal that killing someone is wrong. It's inherently against who we are and what we do. And it's super challenging because sometimes you absolutely have to. But then you're going to second guess yourself a thousand times. Could I have done this differently and not have to do that? If I had done X, would Y have happened? Now, Tom, you bring up a great point about where if you don't go talk to someone and get help or talk to someone or some of the other techniques, it becomes much harder. 
But really sharing your story is critically important because you're not alone. Your story is unique, but there are so many others that have gone through similar things that are currently grappling with the issues that really want to help. They want to reach out, even if it's only to lend an ear. And, and that's a hard thing. It's a lot to say, I need some help. And I'm going to go talk to someone, whether it's somebody at the VFW or the VA or a counselor or whatever it is, a chaplain. It doesn't matter. Taking that first step takes some courage. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength to be able to say, hey, like I'm not dealing with this well and it's becoming detrimental to my life. And myself and Anthony Anderson, the other vet I walked with across the country, we got a lot of mentorship from Vietnam era veterans and direct and indirect. So we got to kind of hang around them a little bit and see and listen to their stories and hearing about how many divorces they've been through, how many families that have been torn apart and kids that won't talk to their uh, fathers anymore and alcohol abuse and all these different things. And it was real clear to us that we needed to do something now while we had the opportunity to. Otherwise, the writing's kind of on the wall and we just kind of perpetuate these cycles as veterans and that's the cost of war. So when we decided to walk, I mean, we were both kind of in the same boat, but I had gone to get treatments, uh, traditional talk therapies, uh, medications, all these different things. And they didn't really get at the core of what I was experiencing and what I was feeling. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress in 2008. And even when I got that diagnosis, I was like, it doesn't really resonate with me because I know that the, it's, there's something more than just these symptom clusters that I'm experiencing. There's something going on. So walking across the country was our effort to really find what that core issue, what was really going on. We both left Milwaukee at the, I think, I believe at the end of 2013, we had two different goals. My goal was to really process the death of my friends and how that impacted me. And my buddy, Anthony went out with the idea of how can I be a better father and a better husband? Because we were both really struggling with the symptoms of our deployment or combat stress or however you want to say. So what led us to that was basically suicidal ideation. And to this day, I have a few friends that I served with who, who have uh, completed suicide. And it's sad, but also like I get it as a, as a soldier, understanding that that option is always kind of looming and you're always waiting to hear a phone call of someone that you served with that ended up taking their own lives and it's still a big problem in the, in the veteran community. And I would say that people don't want to kill themselves. They want to end suffering the suffering that they're experiencing and they don't have a uh, means to do that. So they feel that that's the only option to end how they're feeling, you know, how they're feeling inside. So I got to that point and I, and I felt like before I do that, before I follow through with it, before I make this plan or start really putting some energy behind it, I need to really put in some effort into trying to heal myself. And I said, at least put in like 100% effort. And if you still at the end of, end of it aren't, aren't satisfied or whatever it might be, then I'll revisit it. But that was kind of the genesis of the walk. And then we ended up doing an awareness campaign for veterans issues, suicide awareness, and all these different things. So I've heard that. I've heard what you just said repeated in probably a hundred different ways, but it's always the exact same output where people come to the conclusion that suicide is the right answer. My family will be happier. They'll be better off without me. But 100% of the people that have attempted it and were not successful, that moment when they realized that they were still alive 
universally say, oh, thank God I'm still alive. They didn't really want to die. They just wanted the pain to stop. And it's a scary thing because it's very real and it's an overwhelming sense of dread of dealing with the pain every day. But getting help helps. And that's scary and challenging, too. But apparently going on 2,700 mile hikes helps as well. Now, I'm a hiker. I go on the AT here in Virginia and I've got a group of friends while I'll go hiking. But I would not think to do 2,700 miles or go across the country. How did you guys come up with that? Yeah. I mean, we really wanted to take the time to be with ourselves. So we really felt that we needed time and walking. It was a five month. So we felt that that would give us adequate time to be able to actually kind of just be with ourselves. Because when you get out of the service, you're trying to catch up with your peers who are usually graduating college at that time. You're getting a full-time job. You're getting your own place. You're trying to get back on your feet. You're not dealing with the, the great, the monumental event that happened in your life. And you have to understand too, people who have served, generally speaking, coming from lower social economic places, right? It's an opportunity to get out of where you're from. If you're in an area that doesn't have a lot of jobs, it doesn't really have a future or that you can see a future. So it's a good way to get out of the current situation that you're in. So uh, we really understood that we needed to remove ourselves from our environment, remove ourselves from the daily grind as it is, and really take the time to focus on our deployment past and how it impacted us. What are the results of that? How is it manifesting in our lives in a negative way? And the only way you can really do that is to take the time and really give yourself an opportunity to kind of sit with yourself and be with it. And we felt that walking over five months would give us the opportunity to start doing that. Were you guys talking as you're going hiking? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out how exactly and, and what you're doing as you're going through the hike and how this this experience helped you uh, with your moral injury. Yeah, that was one thing that we really was really uh, grateful for having Anthony along. Initially, I started out saying, I'm just going to do this on my own and just see how it goes. And then Anthony approached me and was interested in joining. And it ended up being a real good example in peer support. So if we were struggling with something, we would kind of bounce things off e off each other based on our current understanding. And we didn't deploy to the same places, but we deployed at the same time. So we had similar experiences that we could kind of share and kind of talk to each other about and kind of build some understanding based off of some, another veteran's experience, which is really, really important. And I really recommend that anyone listening, if you can reach out to another veteran or someone who has served, doesn't have to be the same. It could be an Afghan vet or an Iraq war vet, a Gulf War, Vietnam, whoever it might be, to start having conversations about your experiences with them. Because one, it helps yourself build understanding about how you're processing, how you're processing these experiences. And two, listening to other veteran stories also does the same thing. It gives you insight into someone else's experience, which you can actually use to help kind of understand what you've been through yourself. And that's a great point because it's your situation. Your story is unique to you. A lot of other guys have been through a lot of similar things and have been dealing with the same sort of baggage. And well, we're not alone. So you went out and while you were there, you met with some other folks throughout this journey. How did that change your perspective? Yeah, I think well, one thing to really kind of highlight that was really important was coming back, the level of trust that I had for anyone who was outside of the military at that time was pretty non-existent. So it really helped us get out of our little bubbles that we have created for ourselves to start talking to other people. And meeting people along the way helped us understand that there are so many good people out there that want to help 
veterans. They really want to help in any way that they can. They just don't have an outlet to do it. And when we were walking across the country, this gave people a outlet to support and show their support. So for us, it was really a good exercise and one, putting ourselves out there and starting to talk about our uh, experiences with people who didn't have the experience of war to help build their understanding of how they can help men and women when they return from combat. So it's really important to understand that being able to share your experience is not just about you. It's about educating non military folks about the realities of war and what the toll is and what the cost is on human life. And they don't, they don't count suicide as a combat casualty, but how many men and women have taken their own lives as a result of being in a combat zone or seeing things in a combat zone. So we really don't have a, a clear picture on the true cost of war. And I think once we start understanding that it goes far beyond the combat zone, we can start having a better understanding of the true cost of war. So it's up, it's our responsibility, I believe, as veterans to be able to get to a point where we are able and comfortable to share our experiences with people who haven't uh, been there because we have people that are making decisions right now who have no combat experience and sending young men and women into harm's way without having any real world experience. So they're just looking at spreadsheets. So it's up to us to be able to educate the general population on what's happening in combat zones and what are the long-term implications of that. This week, as we're talking, it's the end of 20 years of continuous war, the longest sustained period of conflict in United States history, and it's shaped my entire adult life. I was at the Pentagon on 9-11. I saw that building burning and, and ran in. I was helping people. And within a year or so, I was headed to Iraq. So I get it. So you took the time and you hiked across the country to realize, hey, I need to get good. I need to get good for me. And it was documented, which is pretty neat. It's called Almost Sunrise, and it's been screened at a ton of various film festivals. So if anybody wants to go learn about the hike Tom and his buddy undertook, go look up the documentary. It's called Almost Sunrise. So, Tom, you go on a 2,700-mile hike, and then you get back. How did you decide uh, when to stop at 2,700 miles, or was it five months and done, or a distance, or if you're doing better? How, how did you decide? Yeah, it really helped me understand how much work I had to do. And it was really just the the beginning of my healing process, which is an ongoing thing. You have to build an understanding of yourself and how the events of your past have impacted you and how you're able to move on from them and how you're able to be become a better person and use these experiences to become a better person. And that's what we like to kind of uh, point to as post-traumatic growth. We have traumatic experiences that happen in the past, but we can just let them sit there and let them fester away, or we can really go in there and build understanding of how it impacts impacted us and how we're going to move on from it and use those experiences to become a better person in the end. So I wanted to ask you about meditation. I have friends that do meditation and it's almost Zen-like how they get into that zone uh, where they're doing the meditation. I don't really get it myself. I'm not that good at it. Maybe I need to practice. But how did you get into it? Yeah, that was something that we were exposed to as we were walking across the country, took a, a meditation course and then ended up taking a, a breath workshop, which is put on by an organization called Project Welcome Home Troops that's free for veterans and their families to experience a breathing workshop over five days. So after taking a meditation workshop and then breathing workshop, it had such a profound impact on me of leaving the stress that I was feeling. So that's the, the thing to highlight is these are tools that we can use to relieve stress and tension from the body and mind. And it doesn't matter your religious preference or belief systems. It can actually be very complementary to what you are 
already believe in. So understanding that being able to take a little bit of time every morning or in the evenings just to be with yourself and sit and really kind of assess what's going on ends up being a vital tool to build understanding of yourself. So we have opportunities to do this throughout the day. And it's only, you don't have to sit for an hour or two hours at a time or anything like that. 15, 20 minutes a day is fine. And it's been something that's been really helpful for me. And it was something I kind of wanted to move away. I tried medications and there's a time and a place for medications to help stabilize, but I didn't really believe that it was a long-term fix for what I was experiencing. So I needed to start building up tools to be able to manage the experiences from war. Meditation is a great tool to be able to start managing stress, but it's also challenging to get started. So you have to understand that it's a practice and understanding that you need to practice to become better at anything. So it's something that I've been doing for the last seven years and it's really helped manage the stress on a day-to-day level. So those are the types of things we start to need to start incorporating into our lives to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be. You're talking about very focused breathing, very intentional breathing techniques and meditation. So how does someone that's listening to the show get into it? Where can they find out more or see if it helps them? So there's a lot of styles and types of meditation. That's because there's so many different people on the planet. So there's a lot of different things that that you can try. There's a lot of apps out there that give you guided experiences where, and that's where I started. I wasn't able to just sit there for 10 minutes with my eyes closed and just be like, oh yeah, everything's great. And I feel great. No, it's quite the opposite. Like my mind was racing, my body hurt, all these different were coming up for me. And those meditation gives you the opportunity to actually just sit and witness what is going on with the mind, what's going on in the body. Because so often we're pulled in so many different directions during the day. We kind of don't even give it a second of thought, like, oh, my hip's hurting. Like I'm just just going to not address that and just let it go and just keep going and grind it out. Or the the quality of my mind is bad today. Like it doesn't feel, I don't feel good. Um, I feel agitated and meditation gives us an opportunity to just sit back and be like, Hey, what is happening right now? Let me take an assessment and understand what's going on inside. So I can take the proper actions to do that. But the only way that gets better is with practice. So showing up every day for yourself. And that's kind of what I think of meditation is doing is the first thing that I do in the mornings. And that's just kind of how I start my day and how I kind of set the tone for the day. It's super interesting to learn about how people learn the techniques. And because like you said, there's a million different styles. And if one doesn't work for you, just go try another one. But they all share some things in common. But I want to know, how does that help regulate emotions? Yeah, we're really dealing with is the nervous system, especially with these uh, breathing techniques. So your emotions are actually connected to your breath. So we understand that if someone, a significant other, uh, a partner, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it may be, if they take a deep sigh, immediately you look at them and you're like, what's wrong? Like intuitively that something's wrong with someone, like they're sad or something's bothering them when they take a deep breath and let it out as a sigh. So that's our body, the breath right? To convey emotion. So when we incorporate breathing techniques, a real good one, you can probably just look it up online. It's called the alternate nostril breathing. And that deals directly with the nervous system. So I jokingly say it takes you from a seven to a four. It doesn't cure or fix the issue at hand, but it shaves the edges off enough so that you can think a little clearer um, about the next 
the next step. Because so often we say things that we don't mean to say, or once that happens and once we fly off the handle, we can't get that back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So we have to really build some self-awareness in the sense that understanding like I feel agitated right now, I'm snapping at my significant other, I'm angry, I'm upset, whatever it might be. And to take five minutes to do some alternate nostril breathing or different breathing techniques help get you through those moments. I love the analogy of going from a seven to a four because it's so easy to go from like a six to a nine in a heartbeat. Yeah. It's a real practical tool in my toolkit for, for managing stress and understanding that what usually ends up happening is when we get agitated or angry or upset, we start looking for someone to project that onto. So I don't want to feel this way. Whoever's in my target zone is going to feel the wrath or whatever it might be. But understanding that it's like, okay, this is my stuff um, that I need to manage right now and has nothing to do with the people around me, even though that person might have said something that triggered something inside of you um, that worked something up or triggered something to uh, agitate what's going on inside. But understanding that like, okay, that's there's something there that is causing this, that I need to do a deeper dive into to understand what's going on with me, because it has nothing to do with um, these outside people that we, we are responsible for our emotions. And a lot of people don't like to hear <laughs> that. And that's a very different thing than we often think about. Oh, you made me mad. We've been talking with Tom Voss, the author of Where War Ends, a combat veteran's 2,700 mile journey to healing, recovering from PTSD and moral injury through meditation. Tom, before I let you go, what should I have asked you about but didn't? Yeah, I think there's like two things that come to mind is you, you have to be honest and sincere with yourself about wanting to get better and wanting to feel better. And that feeling of wanting to get better and wanting to be a better person has to outweigh what you feel other people will think about you. So you have to be in this position of saying like, look, I'm going to put myself in new situations that I've never been in before in the hopes that it will help me feel better or give me the tools that I need to feel better in a real practical way. And the other thing that comes to mind is that we're not here to compare our traumas with with other people. So often I hear so many veterans saying, oh, my story is nothing compared to yours. And like your experience is valid to you and it impacts you specifically. So we have to understand that we can't be comparing our experiences and that's what keeps us from, from seeking help. One-upmanship in the military and among veterans is legendary. So yeah, it's absolutely a barrier. And it's absolutely nonsense. We all served and we all have our own experiences. One of the most dangerous jobs in Iraq were the truck drivers that were going back and forth, carrying all the ammunition and food and all the other things you need. They were getting hit with IEDs almost daily. And I think about that a lot because I was in Baghdad and just north of us was a logistics base, log based sites. And they were getting rocketed and mortared. And we'd be watching and watching the rockets rain in on them. And they didn't have buildings. They were in tents with sandbags. And now we had uh, buildings, and so we we're relatively safe. But there was a lot of casualties on this logistics area. And, and you think, oh, they're just quartermaster. Uh, they're not real combat troops. Right. I, I guarantee that their experience is as valid as anyone else's, or perhaps even more so. So you just don't know. And, and that's a good takeaway. Tom, Thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Now is the time to check in on your people. That's something that you can do. Uh, people that you've served with or people that you know have served, give them a call, text them, send them an email, whatever you can do just to check in and see how things are going and see how people are doing. That's one thing that we can do. 
And and just that little gesture could be the difference between someone completing suicide and not, you know, calling and just seeing how they're doing, even if it's, they don't want to talk or anything like that, just check in. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, folks, Tyler here at Coming Home Well. I wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, BetterHelp, for sponsoring our podcast. As a veteran-related podcast, we cover a lot of sensitive topics and difficult issues that our military service members face when they return home from war. One of the biggest challenges vets often face is the isolation of today's culture. Nine out of ten times, we prefer just to stay home. Maneuvering through all the chaos in today's society can be debilitating. So reaching out to someone who is qualified to help can be a starting point in moving forward. And that's why I'm proud to announce our connection with BetterHelp.com. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com. BetterHelp.com is one of the leaders in online counseling and will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. So that's a great opportunity to talk to someone and you don't even have to leave your own couch to go sit on someone else's. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you can be connected to a therapist in under 48 hours. If you're not comfortable talking over the phone, you could start by texting. They have video chat options, real time options, and you can meet weekly at the discretion of the counselor. Now, this is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. It is someone who's trained in handling veterans' issues and can help you tackle that mountains of struggles together rather than alone. If you go to betterhelp.com slash coming home well, you'll be automatically put in for a discount code of 10% off of your first month of therapy. If you don't see the 10% put on automatically, just put in the discount code coming home well, as this will also get your 10% off. If you're experiencing financial hardships, let them know. There is financial aid available in the form of an extra discount. Again, that is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com backslash coming home well, all one word. They are great at what they do, and what they do is help us veterans to come home well. Thank you so much for joining us on Coming Home Well. Until all are home and all are well, this is Coming Home Well.